0: Tonight, straight from the
1: source, from court to courting support. Donald Trump back on the campaign trail tonight after pleading not guilty for the second time within 24 hours. Also now pleading to the Supreme Court for help. Plus, a new sentence for Navalny, Putin's nemesis. He says he was handed a life sentence behind bars by a Russian leader bent on silencing his critics. And a freebie, free-for-all, a social media star's giveaway stunt caused complete chaos in New York City, sparking massive mayhem and his arrest. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, the thrice-indicted former president is in Alabama at a Republican state dinner seeking to shore up support amid his mounting legal problems. Once again, attacking the special prosecutor overseeing his latest two federal charges and making more wild claims.
2: They waited right to the middle of an election and they waited until I became the dominant force in the polls. They filed them all, every one of them all at essentially one time, including local DAs and AGs and even other cases right in the middle of the campaign. Every time they file an indictment. We go way up in the polls. We need one more indictment to close out this election. One more indictment, and this election is closed out. Nobody has even a chance. Referring to the deranged Jack Smith, he's not only going to have to just bulldoze through the First Amendment, he's going to have to bulldoze through a line of cases by the Supreme Court of the United States. In other words, this is an absolute case of prosecutorial misconduct. The only civil rights that have been violated in this matter are my civil rights.
1: I should note he is once again attacking Jack Smith here after we even heard from his own attorney general this week defending the special counsel. Those comments come after Trump entered yet another not guilty plea today. That was in response to those three new charges that were brought against him in that superseding indictment in the classified documents case last week. That is two not-guilty pleas in the span of less than 24 hours. The former president clearly feeling the legal pressure, he is now asking the Supreme Court to intervene via social media, lamenting the time and money that his legal troubles are costing him. Actually, he's not really asking. He says the court, in his view, quote, must intercede. He also put out this cryptic post earlier, all caps, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. I'm joined now tonight by a pair of former federal prosecutors, Jennifer Rogers and Shan Wu. Thank you both for being here. Jennifer, let me start with you on just the comment that Trump made there, not calling Jack Smith deranged, which he has been doing uh, essentially nonstop, but saying the only civil rights that are being violated here are mine. Clearly a reference to one of the charges in this January 6th case.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, he's obviously attacking with everything he's got here to try to distract from what we all saw in the 45-page indictment that was issued recently. So, you know, this is this is his play, right? Civil rights. He's talking about we're in the middle of an election. So it's election interference. It's prosecutorial misconduct. I mean, he references Supreme Court precedent. I'd love to hear him talk about what Supreme Court cases he thinks these are. I mean, this is just his playbook. We can expect a lot more of it as the case moves along.
1: Shan, I think when people hear him just constantly attacking Jack Smith, something that we've made a point of pointing out simply because Sometimes it gets glossed over, and it's still just so remarkable in and of itself that he's constantly attacking the prosecutor. But I think some people would look at that and say, does this does this warrant a gag order? But, I mean, how does that work, given right. he, he's on the campaign trail when he's making these comments? He's running.
4: Yeah, it'd be difficult to institute an actual gag order, um, although it was a little bit unusual uh, when he was arraigned that the magistrate gave that particular warning about not doing anything uh, which might— Interfere with uh, jurors in particular. And so you could make the argument that comments like this um, could influence the jury that way. And that could be a problem for him down the road. That would set up a, a bill of a First Amendment clash right even before they get to trial.
1: Yeah. And, and Jennifer, he's also tonight saying, making clear what he would do if he does get that second term in office. And not just talking about his priorities, but talking about appointing a special counsel to investigate the Biden family. I talked to his attorney general, Bill Barr, who certainly was loyal to him when he was in the administration, and asked him if he was worried that, that Trump would try to weaponize the Justice Department. This is what he said. Do you worry that he would weaponize it if he was back in office?
2: Uh,
3: absolutely.
1: I mean, he's making clear there that, that he would.
3: He is. I mean, it's a little bit rich Coming from Bill Barr, who, frankly, was one of the instruments of the weaponization the first time around in a Trump administration. But I think we all can see that a second Trump administration would be even worse in this regard because he's just openly saying it, you know, his goal would be to put in people who are loyal to him above all else and to use the office and the powers of the Justice Department to go after his political opponents. I mean, there's no mystery now as to what he would do. It's not a legal question in the sense that there's nothing really legally that can be done about that. Um, but it's a a real problem. Certainly voters should be paying attention to that.
1: Yeah. I mean, he even tried to do it when he was at the end of his his term, when he tried to put Jeffrey Clark in, uh, someone who was trying to help draft letters to, to Brian Kemp of Georgia about fraud that didn't exist. The other thing that Trump is saying today is about the Supreme Court, asking them to get involved here, talking about the time that it's going to take for these trials to potentially play out, but also the cost of these. I mean, The idea that the Supreme Court is going to get involved in these 78 criminal charges, does it at all seem likely to you?
4: No, they're not just going to suddenly reach out um, and do something about it. Uh, He'd have to find some vehicle to get there. And in criminal trials— Um, It's pretty hard to do that. Once it gets going, it's not easy to find an issue to sort of stop the case and move on. If there is like a motion to suppress, which might be dispositive, you know, something like that can move up. That's not happening here. So I think, again, that's mostly his public relations bluster.
1: Yeah, but it is... When it comes to how much time this is going to take up, Jennifer, Mm -hmm. there is a point about if he is facing trial. I mean, even in just one of these cases alone, it's a significant amount of time and amount of effort and resources to to fight something like this. When you look at the calendar of what this is going to be, the Republican debate, the first one, is coming up very soon. Uh, He's got his hearing on the January 6th case right after that in January the Eugene Carroll defamation case then his New York case just a few weeks after Super Tuesday and then of course the documents and what this case is going to look like those big questions i mean is there any does his legal team will they be able to in any way effectively argue that the timing affects his campaigning?
3: Well, it's not so much about the campaign. I mean, I know for him as a practical matter it is, but as far as the judges are concerned, even if you just take out everything other than the three criminal cases, maybe soon to be four, it's really hard to see how there's room in the calendar for all of them. I mean, you need at least probably six months to prepare for any of these criminal trials, and yet we have, you know, six months takes us beyond the end of the year. We have a March trial, we have a May trial. Then you hit that 60 to 90-day period before an election where DOJ won't do anything overt that might impact the election. So, you know, I don't know what Judge Tuckin is going to do, but it's really hard to see how they fit all of this in without even really thinking too much, frankly, about the campaign.
1: And they may be setting a trial date by the end of this month, at least uh, an initial one. But the other thing that has been a subject of discussion Trump's attorneys are in favor of this, and so are House Democrats. I think the circles where their their interests overlap is probably pretty small. But cameras in the courtroom, oh, they yeah. both are advocating for this. I mean, it's going to be one of the biggest, if not the biggest, trials in this nation's history. Mm. But it seems like there's no chance that that would happen.
4: Yeah, no chance.
1: <laughs> I mean, even the if fact- they both advocate for it.
4: Right, because it's really going to be up to the judges. I mean, the federal judiciary is living, like, in the 19th century. Some members of the Supreme Court may be in the 17th or 18th century. They are not going to put cameras uh, in, particularly, I think, this seems reverse in psychology, but particularly because it's a case of such notoriety and there's so much public interest, that's exactly when they don't want cameras in the courtroom.
1: How does that work? I mean, that seems... uh non-lawyer here, but how does that, I mean, that seems like when it's when it's the most interest, that's when people want to be able to watch it, want to be able to see and judge for themselves on this. I mean, we saw the January 6th congressional hearings
3: did Yeah, though. I wouldn't say there's zero chance, but it's pretty slim. I mean, Justice Roberts could do it tomorrow. It's just a policy. It's not a law. Uh, and you know, over COVID, they did start um, putting out audio streams of the, the arguments. And so, I don't know, they've taken tiny baby steps. I'd be surprised if it happened, but I wouldn't say it's impossible. I So hope essentially,
1: it, it would have to be a to Chief Justice John Roberts or Congress passing a law.
3: I don't know what would happen if Congress yeah. passed a law. I mean, it's a policy. It's right. not. So, if Congress yeah. passed a law, that's actually an interesting legal question. Shan and I yeah. will discuss at the break. Okay. Yeah, well, Roberts
4: is head of like the administration right. for the judiciary, so will be up to him.
3: So, for yeah. now, we're relying yeah. on Bill Hennessy's court sketches. Right. <laughs>
5: exactly.
4: uh, thank you both for joining
1: on a sure. Friday night, Jennifer Rogers, Shan Wu. Meanwhile, Secret Service agents, of course, follow former presidents wherever they go. But there has never been a former president facing a potentially real threat of prison time before. So, there is a looming question. What would happen to Trump's security detail if he does ever end locked up? Plus, the jailed Putin foe, Alexei Navalny. 19 more years have been added to his sentence. It has prompted harsh condemnation from everyone, including the U.S. government. Will Navalny ever see freedom again? We're going to speak to someone who knows him very well next. Tonight, after trying to poison him to death didn't work... Vladimir Putin's arch nemesis has been sentenced to an additional 19 years in one of Russia's most brutal penal colonies. Alexei Navalny was convicted on charges of, quote, so-called extremism, which relate to his years-long effort to root out corruption in Russia and expose Putin's grift and his lies. He appeared gaunt in court, but he did flash a defiant smile as he learned his fate today. All of this is an effort that his supporters say is meant to silence the fiercest political opponent that the Russian leader has ever faced. After the hearing, Navalny released a statement to those supporters. It read, in part, 19 years in a special regime colony. The number doesn't matter. And the verdict is not for me. It is for you. They want to frighten you. You may recall Russian agents attempted to kill Alexei Navalny by poisoning his underwear with a lethal nerve agent. He survived just barely. And despite that attack on his life, he returned to Moscow. But before he left, he issued a plea to the Russian people: should he be silenced, perhaps forever.
6: Все, что нужно для торжества зла.
1: That clip is from the Oscar winning film, CNN Films documentary Navalny. And the director of that documentary, one of the people who knows Navalny very well, Daniel Rohr, joins me now. Daniel, uh, last time we talked was after you got that Oscar, and it was it was this jubilant time bringing attention to the world about what Navalny has been through. I mean, I wonder what went through your mind when you saw him in his court today, in court today, and how he looked.
7: Well, Caitlin, thank you for having me on the program. I'm always happy to be here to talk about Alexei, as sad as the situation may be. Today we saw Navalny in court. He looked gaunt, um, but it's clear that his spirit is intact. He's a remarkably resilient man, and in spite of, of this, this new sentence that he's facing, um, it is clear that this regime has not broken his spirit, his humor, his optimism, and his uh, uh, perseverance. And that's something that really matters to me.
1: Yeah, and uh, that's always something that comes through when he when he speaks on social media. I know. I mean, a concern is that that presence may be limited or eliminated because of this. And just for for people at home, I mean, these special regime prison colonies are are usually reserved for Russia's worst criminals. This is clearly a scare tactic from Putin. I mean, the question is, will it work?
7: Well, it's a very complex question because the contemporary landscape of Russian politics is very is very complex. Will it work? Will it silence Navalny? Never. He will never be silenced. He's proven as much. He decided to go back. He could have been in exile. He could have stayed outside of the country. He chose to go back. He wanted to be the moral leader of the nation. Some people call it a savior complex. Some people think it was foolish to go back, but whether you criticize the decision or not, you can't help but admire his courage and the courage of his convictions. They are trying to silence all opposition, not just Navalny, but everyone who follows him, everyone who believes in a free, democratic Russia, uh, the beautiful Russia of tomorrow, as Navalny calls it. Um, but you know, so often that I'm reminded of that old adage, the night is darkest just before the dawn. And um, we can only hope that a new day lingers around the corner and that Navalny's courage will inspire others.
1: I can't even imagine the impact this is having on his family. I mean, His parents were barred from attending the hearing, forced to watch it on a video that they could barely hear. and. Obviously, Russian officials are trying to make this as difficult and as painful as possible. I know you've been in touch with his family. What have they told you?
7: You know, it's incredibly difficult. What is there to say? Their husband, their father is behind bars for nothing. Um, You know, imagine how painful that must be for Dasha, his daughter, Zahar, his son, Yulia, his wife. You know, Russia is a country where I think it was just last month, that Evgeny Prokosian marched his mercenary army within 150 miles of Moscow and and killed 11 Russian service members, wreaked havoc. It was a, a military coup, or so we thought. And meanwhile, Navalny's the one who is convicted of extremism and on trial for terrorism and and things like this. It's absurd. It's Kafkaesque. If it wasn't so sad, we'd laugh about it. it. It seems like some weird, bizarre satire. But it's all very real, and at the center of it is this man who is sacrificing so much for... His country and for what he believes in. I think that his family is in lockstep with him. They have remarkable courage as well. And I think so much of his courage is, is foddered by his family and their support of him.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking today with all the talk of Political prosecution here that's been happening in the last 48 hours. I mean, this is what this actually looks like. I mean, the conditions that he's in, Russian guards have purposely made him sick. The lights are, are constantly on, you know, even at night. They tease him by showing him food that his daughter has sent him and then take it away. This is just you mentioned his daughter there, and I'm glad you brought her up. This is something that she said recently to CNN.
3: There are no calls, no visits, no human conditions.
1: He's allowed to write... Uh, 35 minutes per day with a pen and paper. Um, He's allowed to have two books. These actions are clearly an open strategy
6: to destroy my father's um, physical health and maybe mental too.
1: How worried are you about
6: him?
7: Extremely worried. You know, there's no doubt about it. This regime has entered a new phase of cruelty, of inhumanity, they are doing whatever they can to destroy this man's spirit, um, and we have to call it what it is. He is being held in torturous conditions. All of the the, the laundry list of techniques that they have to break his spirit are, uh, are are brutal and cruel and 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 sadistic. But the man is strong. His spirit remains unbroken. Um, and that's something that everyone has to pay attention to. And I think my responsibility and the responsibility of of everyone around the world who cares about the future of Russia and the future of Ukraine um, needs to make sure that Navalny remains in the global consciousness. Our film is available on on Max, which used to be called HBO Max. People can watch it there, and they can learn about his story, and they can learn about Navalny. I think people have to know his name. Um, But what he's looking at is a very, very challenging ordeal, Um, He's been through so much, and it seems like it's just getting started for him. And so, of course, that leaves the people who care about him terrified.
1: Yeah, it's an incredible film. Everyone should watch it. Daniel Rohr, thank you for joining us tonight.
7: Thank you for having me.
1: An important conversation. Meanwhile, back here, a turn to the presidential politics that we are seeing play out in the United States. GOP hopeful Ron DeSantis facing heat we saying on day one that he would, quote, start slitting throats in federal government. He's walking it back.
2: You guys
7: know it's a I mean, come on, it's a figure, figure, figure of speech.
1: Florida Governor Ron DeSantis taking a baby step away from Donald Trump today after he was asked about the former president's repeated lies that the 2020 election was stolen
7: was not an election that was conducted the way I think we want to, but that's different than saying like Maduro stole votes or something like that. And I think those theories, you know, proved to be unsubstantiated.
1: It may not seem like much, but those comments from DeSantis are actually some of the most direct that he has made about the former president's defeat in 2020. I mean, previously when he was asked about those claims, the claims that are not true about fraud, he dodged the question, usually would pivot to other topics. These comments from DeSantis come just one day after Trump pleaded not guilty to those charges al- related to his alleged plot to overturn the 2020 election. With me to discuss this tonight, Democratic strategist Karen Finney and former Republican congressman of Pennsylvania, Charlie Dent. Why now?
6: <laughs> yeah,
5: yeah, why now? Well, hey, that was a start. Uh, I, I suspect maybe Trump has gotten under his skin. I think he's called... Ron DeSantis just about every name under the book, from Meatball to the Sanctus to DeSanctimonious. Uh, Trump is just wailing on him all the time. And so so he took a little step here. Uh, but he's going to have to be much more aggressive than he has been if he wants to defeat Trump in a primary. But uh, So I guess better late than never, and this is a small
6: step.
1: But is it a sign that his comments, maybe that Trump's legal exposure, Republicans are trying to take advantage of it? Or does you it know, not go far enough for
6: it you? It seemed like he was trying to split the difference between the, those, that third of the party that is with Donald Trump and believes still believes 2020 wasn't legit, and those who don't, because as we saw earlier this week in that New York Times Siena poll, the national version of the poll, the path is so slim. He's gotta pick off just a little bit of those folks who think 2020 was not legit and went over a portion of the Republican primary electorate that really is over it. Yeah. So it seemed like he was trying to have it both ways. Well, I'm actually. glad you
1: brought that poll up because that was a national poll. They, The New York Times released, and Siena released a version of the Iowa poll. Uh, Trump is still ahead of DeSantis. It's not as dominant as the national poll, but Trump, 44% with Republicans in Iowa, to 20%. I mean, do you see any kind of acknowledgement from DeSantis that he needs to do something different here with his campaign?
5: Well, I, I, I don't know if he sees it or not, but if, if he or any of these other candidates want to break through they are going to have to tear the bark off of Donald Trump. They can't wait for Jack Smith to do it. They're hoping that the legal system will take him down. But other than Chris Christie, Will Hurd, and Asa Hutchison, all the rest of them are either... Basically, reinforcing Trump's message that he is a victim of a witch hunt, of a deep state, of a corrupt uh, justice system. They're reinforcing Trump by doing that. Even those who are straddling are also reinforcing Trump. And that's part of the reason why Trump, I believe, is still so strong. If you had 10 or 11 candidates out there just uh, savaging Trump every day over these indictments, explaining why he is such a great risk to the country You don't think that would party. just boost Trump? No, I think if, if enough people are yelling and screaming... You know, it takes leadership. Republicans have to understand to take down Donald Trump, it will have to be done politically. They're hoping the legal system has it, but but, does it. But if, if he gets convicted, you know, he'll still be running.
6: But with Charlie, they're not going to do it. I mean, again, I the to. poll showed us 37 percent of the Republican primary electorate, they are with him. So that says to me that, you know, Kevin McCarthy is not going to change his rhetoric anytime soon. And then it's going to continue to put that pressure on the fractured Republican Party, where there's some who are ready to move on and some who don't. In the Iowa version of the poll, it was interesting because for Iowans, and again, it was a small sample size, so I think we should be careful, It said, I think it was almost 50 percent said they are open to voting for someone else. So I think the question in Iowa is, can someone like Tim Scott, who actually got a little bump and got a little bump in New Hampshire. He's three
1: times in Iowa what he is nationally. Exactly.
6: And people seem to like him. Right. So if he can kind of creep up and let Trump and DeSantis duke it out. You know, maybe that's a, that's another pathway.
1: How much do donors have a say in this? I mean, Robert Bigelow, who is the biggest, he's the hotel entrepreneur, he is the biggest individual donor to DeSantis so far. And he's telling Reuters tonight that he's not going to donate more money until he sees Him shift to moderates. He says he's going to lose if he stays with the extremists. And he essentially was saying that he needs to see him also generating more interest from other donors. He's clearly, I mean, that's the perception and that's the concern we've heard from other donors.
5: Well, that donor just identified the problem that Ron DeSantis has. Ron DeSantis is trying to be Trump light. I'm going to be, he'll be Trump without all the drama. Uh, But He's also finding out that by taking taking that uh, campaign to the the extent of of grievance politics, you know, Disney, transgendered, abortion, he's finding out that a lot of the non-Trump voters don't want that. They don't want that. So so basically, DeSantis is trying to figure out a way to to unite the non-Trump voters. He's not very good at it because he's really playing hard to the Trumpian wing of the party well, as this donor acknowledges, is not really playing to a significant number of Republicans who are really being turned off by the DeSantis message. So I, I hope more donors speak up like that because it's a problem for the whole Republican Party. You look at these state committees all over the, the country in Pennsylvania and Michigan. These, these parties are struggling because the, 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 the wacko fringe has taken over the party and people serious people won't send money.
1: Karen, I have to get your take on this (laughs) because, yeah, we'll just end that on that note. Um, But DeSantis has made this promise of downsizing federal agencies a staple on the campaign trail. I mean, he essentially talks about it everywhere. A lot of the Republicans do, but it's really been his thing. But he is now clarifying comments he made about what he would do on day one when it came to the federal government in office.
4: And then
7: on bureaucracy, um, you know, we're going to have all these deep state people – you know, we're going to start slitting throats on day one. Well, you guys know it's—I mean, come on—it's a f- figure, figure of speech um, with that, but but it should be taken to mean we, we want accountability.
6: <laughs> He's such a jerk. He's such a bully and a jerk, and he has such a lack of awareness that, particularly coming from him, because he does a lot of this macho, tough guy speak, that when you talk about, I'm going to go in there and slit throats. People think that's what you know. Not that they literally think he's going to slit throats, but they take it as more than just a figure of speech. The other thing about this that I I always hate is it's so duplicitous because anybody who has ever been in Washington knows what it would take to actually get rid of um, the the federal workforce. It's not going to happen. So it's like a great you know thing to beat up on, but it would. Practically, it's ridiculous. The
1: idea of it, I think, some people would be open to the idea of you know minimizing some of the agencies, making their sure. presence not as bloated as it is. But it's the way he said. I mean, we also have some Republicans saying they'll get rid of the, the FBI and you know.
5: Well, it's again, you know, it it was a figure of speech, but it was a dumb thing for him to do. And, you know, and in fact, he's had other bad moments. He just uh, last week, I think he said that he would consider appointing Robert F. Kennedy Jr. to lead (laughs) the Centers for Disease Control of the FDA, Food and Drug Administration. But she also walked back. Well, I mean, but but in what world? I mean, those organizations are, are led by distinguished doctors and life sciences with, uh, people with PhDs. That's what it's about. I mean, this is <laughs> to, to put a quack in there. Uh, I mean, this this is crazy. <laughs> so I mean, so he's had that plus the slavery issue. Your words, not mine. I mean, so I mean, hey. it's just a it's just it's just a crazy thing to do. And yeah. you know, slitting throats. I mean, not
6: helpful. It's just the not more a, mistakes you make. The more people yeah. think you're not ready.
1: Not yeah. a great visual. <laughs> Karen so Boney. Charlie Dent. Great combo on a Friday night. Thank (laughs) (laughs) All right. An unannounced trip to Ukraine by DeSantis's other 2024 rival, Chris Christie. He is now the second Republican hopeful to visit the nation at war. A big divide in their party over U.S. aid to Ukraine, but also a result of a new CNN poll that may surprise you about American sentiment overall. Chris Christie trading the campaign trail for a war zone. The Republican presidential candidate met with Ukrainian President Zelensky during an unannounced trip to the war-torn country today. The former New Jersey governor also visited battle-scarred areas. He is now the second GOP candidate to visit Ukraine and meet with Zelensky. Mike Pence, obviously, was, in there, was there in June. Their support, though, stands in contrast to several of their rivals, including Donald Trump, the frontrunner, who refused to say who he wanted to win the war, Russia or Ukraine. And Governor Ron DeSantis, who has had to walk back his prior claim that it was just a territorial dispute. I'm joined now by CNN's senior political commentator, Adam Kinzinger, obviously former Republican congressman from Illinois. Congressman, thanks for joining me tonight. 71% of your party, Republicans, say that Congress shouldn't authorize new funding. 59% based on the CNN poll say that the U.S. has already done enough to assist Ukraine. I mean, what is the impact of someone who was running for the Republican nomination, given those numbers going to Ukraine?
8: Well, first off, it's good leadership. You know, this is the thing, when it comes to foreign policy, you can't, You leaders have to lead on that. They have to explain what America's interest is. They have to explain the fact, for instance, in this case, that Ukraine is doing the fighting that otherwise we would have to do. It's the most, the best way to keep American boots off of the ground. On the broader scale, so for like the whole country, I do blame the administration for not better explaining both how we're tracking the money, what this actually is, et cetera. On the Republican side, they're, they're just going to do the opposite, basically, of what Joe Biden wants. I blame nobody except the leaders of the Republican Party who have gone along with the Twitter trolls out there and the, the Tucker Carlson's simply because it seems easier at the moment. So Chris Christie going and doing this and Mike Pence earlier Uh, it's good to see. And I would love to see other candidates, frankly, go do that.
1: CNN has also learned that top U.S. and European officials are are worried that Putin is kind of factoring in the election to his war planning. Basically, they believe that he he believes and is hoping a Biden loss would lead to the U.S. curtailing its support for Ukraine and would help his negotiating position. I mean, what do you make of that?
8: Well, it's true. I mean, and it's it's a sad thing that a, a former president who I really feel like is, is losing his mind, is going insane. But he can say things like this. People don't take what he says seriously, but it has a real impact on people's lives. I think if Vladimir Putin knew that Joe Biden was going to stay in supporting Ukraine and that Donald Trump would come in and support Ukraine as well, it would be a huge motivation for him to end the war, even not on his terms. So instead what he's hoping to do, Caitlin, is to spend human lives – to buy time. He can throw meat into the meat grinder to buy days in the off chance that Donald Trump can win. So this is why it's important for the Biden administration, not just to do the bare minimum, not just to wait till the pressure gets strong enough to send like ATACMs and F-16s. They need to send everything Ukraine needs now. By the way, we we have a great ability to track that they're using it correctly. He needs to do that now to end the war as soon as we can.
1: Something else that's happening tonight, Senator Tuberville is in my home state introducing Donald Trump at a Republican dinner in Montgomery. You know, this comes today. We saw Secretary Austin at the Pentagon issue new guidance about basically how leadership roles there will be reshuffled, he believes, because of the hold that Tuberville has on these military nominations and confirmations. I mean, look at the wall. This is the Joint Chiefs of Staff. There is now another empty spot after the chief of the staff of the army retired and and his replacement has not been confirmed. I mean, did you ever think that the the defense secretary would have to issue new guidance on how Pentagon leadership is going to work because of a member of your party?
8: No, and I'll tell you what I never expected is that basically the Democrats would be the pro-military party and that they would almost be the more hawkish party than Republicans are. And that's what's happened. It's been this weird switch. And for Tommy to do, the senator, I'll call him, I guess, respectfully, to do this, is really damaging the military, not just in terms of the promotions, but it's politicizing the last bastion of government that shouldn't be politicized. We've already politicized the Supreme Court. We politicized, obviously, Congress, the presidency, the FBI now. Everything is politicized except the military, and he's doing his best to do it. People like him, you know, people like uh, Josh Hawley that go out and They tweet these ads about how great the Russian army is because they have like these manly ads. The Russian army is getting crushed on the battlefield. I have disagreements with some of the things the Pentagon does. I spend a lot of my time in the military doing computer based training that I don't need to. But that doesn't mean we're not the most lethal force. And that doesn't mean you play politics with a political issue simply because it's going to get you attention.
1: Former Congressman Adam Kinzinger, thank you for your time. You bet. It's their job to protect the former president. We saw the Secret Service go to court with Trump as a criminal defendant yesterday, but what would his security detail do if he actually had to go to prison? A former agent is with me next. We are now at three indictments for Donald Trump. That means three bookings for a not-so-average defendant. Of course, Trump yesterday, following most of the standard protocols, fingerprinted, answered a series of questions about his age, his date of birth, his middle name, escorted into the courtroom where he entered that not guilty plea before the magistrate judge. But the big difference here, of course, is wherever the former president goes, the Secret Service goes with him, raising the question of if Trump got convicted and sentenced to prison, what would incarceration look like for a former U.S. president? Something we've never seen before here to break it all down for us is a former Secret Service agent, Eddie Pompouros. So glad to have you back. I mean, this needs a million caveats because obviously he hasn't been convicted of anything. There could be appeals. There could be pleas. I mean, there could be so many. We don't know what the punishment would look like either. But the idea that this is even something people are talking about, the idea of what this would look like. And given they have Secret Service protection for life, how
0: would that work? I actually don't think it's going to be very difficult. He is going to a very secure location. So depending on what prison he goes, federal or state, because he's also being charged in New York through the state, Mm -hmm. Miami, D.C., they're charging him federally. So there's also a difference between the prisons. If you want to go to prison, you want to go to a federal prison. They're typically safer. State prisons tend to have more violent offenders there. So that's one thing. The other thing is they already have their own security set up. So Bureau of Prisons, let's say he goes federal, they've got their own system set up. It's already safe. You're actually looking at less manpower, less resources, less money, definitely less money for uh, for taxpayers. So when I see that, I see him going to an already secure facility. The kicker comes in and, well, who's he going to be with? Right? Yeah. Where are they actually going to? put him. And so I could see them actually moving people around or inmates around to try to figure out who to put him near, which is interesting because usually we would always name check people to see if they would have a criminal record whenever anybody <laughs> goes all near their president. Have they're all going to have criminal <laughs> records. So having said that, that, I would look for offenders who have nonviolent crime. That's the number one thing we want. Then we also want to look at Reoffenders. If you have somebody who's reoffending over and over and over again, that tends to be somebody a bit more hardened. So I would want first time offenders. So the, the idea would be you can probably maybe pick, shuffle people around and put those people there. But at the end of the day, it's a secure environment. Secret Service will probably give him what's called shift agents. Shift is when you see agents who accompany the president, when you see him coming out of Air Force One, Marine One, it's the it's the group, the contingency that walks around him. That's what you might see and a detail leader, so somebody kind of to shadow him around. Yeah. What
1: I was fascinated by is the Washington Post wrote a story on this today. They actually reached out to the Secret Service, where obviously you used to work, and they asked them to just to comment, but they said, we don't have a comment because this is unprecedented. There 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 is no policy for this. This is not something we've ever had to deal with before. I mean, how do you even go about creating a a structure and a policy for that?
0: I don't think that you need a policy for it because when you do protection, so the president goes somewhere. Let's say the president comes here. I'm going to do an advance of this location. I'm going to check out the structure, the ways in, the ways out, the security plan. I'm going to look at all of it. So at the end of the day, it doesn't matter where he goes. The advance does its thing, they do a thorough assessment. even if it's prison, I'm telling you, prison is just, it's secure. It's already got the manpower there. They already got it locked down. They're already magneto- they've already magnet— got their magnetometers. They're securing everybody. So to me, I see that as a safe place. Now, is it a strange thing to go to work and to say, I'm going to work to secure the president in prison? Yes. I think from the psychological factor, that does play a you know, is relevant. But I also look at it, if we look at it from an international level, there have been so many heads of state all over the world who've gone from prime minister and president to going to prison. Evie Pompouros, we will see what happens, of course. Thank you so much for your expertise tonight.
1: Thank you. Up next, a social media influencer who has 10 million followers promoted a giveaway stunt. And keyword there is stunt. Thousands showed up in New York City. It caused absolute chaos. Dozens were arrested, including the Twitch streamer himself. And also, it is happening. Simone Biles is back, the most decorated gymnast of all time, ready to wow the world again. Thousands of people, as you can see here, swarming New York City's Union Square this afternoon prompting police to mobilize what is known as a level four response to the commotion that you see here. That is the city's highest level disaster response. It all started because a social media star's promise of free PlayStations, computers, and other items drew people to the area. Joining me now, CNN correspondent and a social media star himself. (laughs) Donio, okay, I just heard a laugh <laughs> backstage. not okay. on Twitch, though. <laughs> Tony, but honestly, this was a crazy scene. Everyone in New York was talking about this. What happened?
9: Yeah, I mean, this was, you can see the pictures here. They're quite scary, and a lot of people were hurt. Uh, nobody, uh, thankfully, seriously. And 65 uh, people uh, were arrested there today, 30 of whom were individuals. Um, as you mentioned, uh, a social media influencer, social media star, uh, promised uh, PlayStations or their free uh, consoles items. To give away uh, in Union Square, right here in the middle of Manhattan. Uh, none of that materialized, but what did materialize was essentially a mob.
1: But he himself was arrested.
9: He was arrested, and he is now uh, being charged. We've just learned in the last hour uh, with two counts of uh, inciting a riot uh, and unlawful assembly. And look, I think you know every now and then we get reminded of how how things are happening uh, online and on the internet uh, that you know we might not necessarily think about every day. You know, you might remember a few years ago uh, there was the GameStop uh, stock yeah. uh, play, which happened on Reddit, and now you see this where you know somebody uh, with a follower, you know. A person and influencer, this guy Kaisenet, who a lot of, most people probably have never heard of, has this huge following uh, on social media and can mobilize people in the space of a few hours uh, to to have a kind of dangerous situation play out like this. And the NYPD uh, police chief uh, spoke a little bit uh, about that and just the dangers of this on social media. Have a listen.
4: Well, this speaks to the power of social media and the danger of social media. We do monitor social media. Um, When I go back later on this evening, I will have an after action to determine exactly what our steps were. We can't allow this to happen again in the future.
9: So this influencer, Promise, he, he's on Twitch, which is a uh, streaming platform. It's kind of most associated with gamers. A lot of people will not have heard of it, but if you have a teenager in your house, uh, you probably have heard of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not just gamers that are using these platforms. We know AOC, um, other members of Congress are on these platforms. And um, This guy was also streaming uh, on YouTube, where I think he has something more than like 3 million followers. And look, that is really where young people, teenagers, uh, are going not just every day, but multiple times a day. Uh, Pew last year, Research Center, came out with data showing that uh, 60%, uh, 60% of teenagers, of all teenagers in the US, watch YouTube, go to YouTube multiple times a day. So this is all kind of playing out in a universe. You know, we often talk about the political influence of Facebook and everything like that, but there's this kind of whole other uh, universe of really Essentially, superstars on these platforms.
1: And the pull of it is so clear. I mean, he posts this and then he goes, this. I think that's such an important part that it never actually materialized. It
9: didn't materialize. And also, it's kind of like, you know, it, I think a lot of the people who are there today, uh, you know, they are super fans of, you know, this guy is one of their heroes. Uh, kind of all he does online is kind of do pranks and streams for many hours a day. Uh, so I think a lot of people also showed up, not so much just for the PlayStations, but to see this guy. You know, it'd be like if the Alabama, f- it'd be like be if Alabama football team were showing up, you'd be, you'd be down there. You'd be jumping on cars.
1: <laughs> Politely, though. <laughs> Tony O'Sullivan, thank you very much. And we have some good news to end the night here tonight. The most decorated gymnast of all time is back. Simone Biles is set to compete at the U.S. Classic in Illinois tomorrow. This is her first competition in two years after she withdrew from the Tokyo Olympics, citing the immense pressure and her own concerns about her mental health. At the time, Biles said that she suffered from what she called the twisties, a mental block, essentially, that causes gymnasts to lose track of their position mid-air. With this event tomorrow, though, she is hoping to qualify for the national championships and take her first step toward the Olympics in 2024. And, of course, we are all wishing her the best of luck. Thank you so much for joining us on what was an incredibly busy Newsweek, seen in primetime with Laura Coates starts right now. Hi, Laura.
3: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta